Um, We are going to move into Judges chapter 9 today. What can I say about Judges chapter 9? This is not a political message, but this is a political message. Um, uh, I am aghast with uh, what is going on in Judges chapter 9 and how it's so very much overlaps with what's going on in in our world today. Um, I titled this message a year ago, As Bad As It Gets. Uh, This is really a a significant element in the decline of the toilet flush, the chaos. Um, Even our decorations look like the news news, uh, scenes that we see. Um, The book of Judges is a chaotic time, and this is a huge advancement in the chaos of the book of Judges. Uh, Kenneth Way says about this chapter, pretty much everything is wrong with the picture painted in this story. Uh, This is everything going wrong. The wheels are coming off in this story about Abimelech. Abimelech is one of Gideon's sons. Um, If you'll remember, Gideon has had kind of an up and down journey with the Lord. Um, He does what the Lord asks him, but under cover of darkness and after doubting a lot. And then after he actually defeats the Midianite army, Uh, he says, I'm not going to be your king, but then he takes all the jewels like he's going to be king. We're going to see another thing where he's acting like the king in a passage we're going to look at today. Um, But Gideon's son, Abimelech, really takes it to a new level. Um, And again, I I did not plan this. The Lord plans this, but the, the overlap with current events is pretty significant. Um, Recently, I read this quote. This is human nature at its worst. It is simply get the power and hold the power. It doesn't matter who you kill to get it, and if you have to be treacherous to keep it, so be it. Sounds like our day and age, isn't it? It's actually a quote by Alan Ross about Judges chapter 9. Folks, what's going on in the Bible, what's going on in our world, it doesn't surprise God. This kind of stuff has been going on um, for millennia. And in fact, as we're going to see in this passage, God is actually orchestrating all of the things that are going on. He is using all of the events in world history to advance and accomplish his purpose. He is sovereign over all of this. Um, and, And he is the one who is working it to ultimately bring him glory and, and ultimately put everything under his rule. And what we're seeing in the book of Judges is that these judges that we've seen who are going to continually get worse, Abimelech is as bad as it gets, but it doesn't really improve much with Jephthah and Samson is really a a huge problem, uh, uh, contrary to popular opinion. Um, And then the book degenerates at the end. Um, None of that catches God by surprise. And in fact, part of what Judges is doing is showing us how bad it gets so that we will understand we need Jesus Christ to fix all of this. Um, I quoted Lord Acton last week. He's the guy who said power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Um, He also said this, the danger is not that a particular class is unfit to govern. Every class is unfit to govern. Um, This is true. It's, It's not that that there is a solution out there with human influences that's going to fix everything. Um, I don't know what the solution is to what's going on in our world right now. I, I don't know. I know I 
would love to see peace. I would love to see the ability for Christians to worship and for the gospel to spread. That's what we're supposed to pray for. First Timothy 2 tells us to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and godly lives in Christ Jesus and that we can share the gospel. That's what we're supposed to pray for. I don't know how to get there, but I do know that whatever class, whatever um, governmental force you're looking to set things right, it's not going to work. We're all unfit to govern. When we're governing, it's going to be a mess. There's only one solution. I keep saying this. It's benevolent dictatorship with Jesus Christ ruling. That's our only hope. When, When Jesus Christ is the ruler and in his gracious benevolence, he sets everything right and rules in righteousness. And this passage is is going to be violent. This passage is treacherous. Um, and I guess I just want to say this has been going on for all of history, and it's within God's plan. It's within what God is doing to advance and accomplish his purposes. I've got a couple of uh, resources at the Connection Center for you. They're online as well. One that's really good, kind of balancing this idea of, yes, God is sovereign, but people make their own choices that they're responsible for. Abimelech's a rat, and he's responsible for his, his dastardly character, and he's judged for it, and yet God is in charge. Uh, there's also a great, uh, similar to last week's Gideon overview with applications from it uh, by Robert Chisholm out there. But we need to get into this, uh, this lesson on Abimelech, and and, and in, in order to get to all the story about Abimelech in chapter 9 of Judges, we have to end the last little part of Judges chapter 8. In Judges chapter 8, Gideon is the primary character. He's done what God wanted him to do. He defeats the Midianites, um, and he says the right things. He says, I won't be ruler over you. The Lord's going to rule over you. But, but then he takes all of the, um, all of the trappings of royalty and, and we're going to see here that he's going to do even some more things that, that betray the fact that he really wants to be the ruler. Um, and, and what we're seeing is just this relentless repetition. It's a repetition that gets worse and worse and worse. Again, it's, it's, it's like a toilet flush. It, it doesn't just go around. It goes around and goes down. It gets worse. And what we're going to see is the persistent idolatry of families, Gideon's family, and nations, um, the Israelites, in families and nations, when there's persistent idolatry, it just escalates and spirals out of control. That's what we're going to see in this last part of chapter 8. Uh, Gideon has defeated and routed the Midianite army. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and didn't raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, that's Gideon's other name, his, his name that he was given when he cut down the first tower of Baal. Uh, the, the name means um, Baal contends. And the question is, is Baal going to contend with him or is he contending with Baal? Uh, Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back uh, home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Now that may feel, oh, hey, he had a big family. The many wives is the problem. That's what kings did. <laughs> He's, he's surrounding himself with a harem. His concubine, a slave wife, um, who's half Canaanite, um, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. We'll talk about that name in just a moment. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiziarites. Um, he has a son out of this harem that he's gathered around him. Um, one of his slave wives is, is Canaanite, and he is born, and he names him Abimelech. The, the name Abimelech 
Um, that first part, Av, is like Av, Ava, Father. You know, when we cry out Ava, Father, it's the word for the father. And Melech is the name king. It's, it's the word for the king. And so Abimelech is my father is the king. Now, Gideon is naming his son, my father's the king. Um, interesting dynamic going on there. It may, it may really betray the fact that even though he said the Lord is your king, um, <laughs> I'm really going to be the king. Which makes the point again, he said the right things. Gideon said the right things, but his behavior, his hesitancy, his, his taking all the trappings of being a king betray what's really true in his heart. Um, Mary Evans says this, unless a leader actually lives out a commitment to the covenant and guides his people into also uh, taking up that commitment, there will, inevitable, there, there will be inevitable consequences following on from his or her bad behavior. You can say all you want, but it's the example you live and the life that you live that's really going to get passed on to your kids, um, to the people that you influence. They, they learn more from what they see than from what they hear. The evidence of that is in this next verse. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barit in the, their, as their God and did not remember the Lord their God. They set up a particular Baal. They're not just worshiping around. They, the nation sets up Baal Barit as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Um, the, Gideon leaves behind a nation that's going to be led into chaos and violence and idolatry. Michelle Knight says it this way, the legacy of Gideon is the institutionalization of Canaanite religion among all Israel. The setting out of which an oppressor arose from within the deliverer's own family and terrorized the nation for three years. The oppressor here is not the outsider, not the Midianite, the Amorite, the Amalekite, the Canaanite. The oppressor's not an outside force. The oppressor here is an insider. <laughs> it's one of Gideon's sons. Um, and this, this disarray that's created um, is going to be the subject of this whole story. Before I get into chapter 9, I just want to remind you, from Gideon, what we learn is your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Gideon says the right things. So many of us say the right things. The question is, does our life back up what we say? <laughs> the Lord is our ruler, but give me the jewels. The Lord is our ruler. I'm going to name my son, the fa my father's the king. <laughs> Um, our actions betray us so often. The reality, of, the reality of your life is often seen in the legacy you leave behind. It's not all the things you say. It's the legacy and, and the influence you have on people who follow after you. Um, I, for the most part, I'm going to read through this story. It's 57 verses. Uh, so I'm going to set it up for you, and then we're going to move and, and only pause briefly. But the story is going to have two movements. There's going to be Abimelech's rise to power, him, him getting control of everything, and Yahweh's response to that, and then his demise. He gets, he gets his comeuppance, and then God's response to that. As he's rising to power, I think what we see is that in God's sovereign plan, he can use and often does use the ruthless exploits of evil men to accomplish his divine purposes. And as I go through these passages, I, I want to encourage you, this is happening millennia ago, but this is still true today, last week, 
this week that in God's sovereign plan, he does use ruthless exploits. He does use the ruthless exploits of evil men to accomplish his divine purpose. And in the middle of that, God will give people the kind of leader they deserve. If, if, if you reject him, he's going to give you who you want. And that's not always a good thing. There's going to be three movements in this Abimelech's rise. We're going to see the plot of Abimelech to take over. Then we're going to see Jotham, who is one of Gideon's sons, who's going to tell this really fascinating parable. And then he's going to plea on the basis of the parable uh, to tell the residents of Shechem, don't take Abimelech to be your king. But they're going to do it anyways. Here we go. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Jerubbaal, uh, Abimelech, is the son of Gideon, but not from his harem, but from his concubine, his slave wife, who's half Canaanite. So he goes to his mother, this slave wife, who's a Shechemite, and to all of his brothers from her, he goes to them and he says to them, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you or just one man? And remember, I'm your flesh and blood. Do you want this Gideon guy and, and all of his Israelite um, clan to rule over you, his 70 sons? Or would you like me, and remember, I'm one of you. I'm a Canaanite like you. I'm half Canaanite. Who do you want to rule over you? When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, the, the lords of Shechem, it's, it's, it's the word that's kind of the city fathers of Shechem, uh, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's related to us. Hey, we'll take Abimelech instead of all those sons of Gideon. They gave him 70 shekels of silver for the, from the temple of Baal Berit, which is there in Shechem. And Abimelech used it to hire, um, the NIV translates it, reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He gets a mercenary band, okay? He gets a bunch of mercenaries to follow him. Um, this word, reckless scoundrels, it's a, it's a fascinating word. It, the, the first word mean, means empty, um, reckless, it, but it's used to describe men who um, exhibit inappropriate, often lewd behavior, okay? It's, it's out-of-control men um, who are scoundrels. They're, the word for scoundrel is, is used in a, in a non-person uh, context to describe water that's swirling and troubled. So, so <laughs> out-of-control, lewd, stirred-up men, that's who he gathers around him. He, he gets together a ragtag group of mercenaries, he went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on, on or with, there's something about one stone here. On one stone, he murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. Now, put this together. Um, he gets 70 shekels and then gathers some men, and it's almost as if like one shekel apiece for each one of those guys we kill. Um, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the city fathers of Shechem and Beth Milo, these two cities together, gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. He shows up at, um, goes up to Gideon's hometown, Ophrah, which is away from Shechem. He goes up there. He murders all the brothers. One of them escapes by hiding. And now the Shechemites say, now you can be our king because there's no one else who, who would have a claim to rule over us like Gideon's boys. And so they're now going to uh, crown him as king. This is a coronation ceremony at Shechem. Let me show you a couple pictures of Shechem. This is a, a picture of Shechem. This is in the foreground. What you see there 
is the, um, the ruins, the archaeological ruins of Shechem. In, in Israel, in many places in the, in the Near East, when, where, um, when they find an archaeological find, everything just has to stop. And so, I mean, they can build a, 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 an apartment right up to the edge of the archaeological finds. Well, this is the finds of Shechem. They have found the ancient city of Shechem. This is it. I'm going to put it in a little bit bigger context so you can understand what's going on here. Shechem is actually between these two mountains, Gebel, or Gerizim and Ebel. There's a, a rich history here that, that makes a lot of sense. When Joshua brought the Israelites into the land, after they're brought out of um, Egypt captivity by Moses, uh, when Joshua brings them into the land and they conquer the land, they ratify their covenant right here at Shechem. And what Joshua does is he gets half the crowd on Mount Gerizim and half the crowd on Mount Ebal. And uh, part of the covenant God makes with them is if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'll discipline you. And so what he does is all the guys on Gerizim are singing out the blessings and all the guys on Ebal are singing out the curses. Uh, So this is the history of this location. Um, And now where they have have done this, they're going to have a coronation to make... uh, Abimelech, the king of Shechem, kind of the the mayor of the town, and he's very influential all around. When Jotham, remember the escaped son who who wasn't murdered, when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top top of Mount Gerizim. He goes part way up Gerizim. He gets up high enough that they can hear him, but high enough that he can escape quickly. Um, and, And he shouted to them, listen to me, you lords of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Listen to me and and make the right decision so that you can repent from making Abimelech. So God will listen to you when you say we're making a mistake. Then he tells this parable. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? I mean, obviously the answer is no. It's like I'm doing something productive already. I don't need anything more. Next, the tree said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit? So good and sweet, hold sway over the trees. Obviously, no, I'm producing something good. I don't need that. Then the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine said, should we give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? He's told this parable. <laughs> Finally, the trees said to the thorn bush, come be our king. When you think thorn bush, bramble bush, think of a tumbleweed, okay? This is, say to the tumbleweed, the, the thorn bush said to the trees, uh, they, they say to the, the tumbleweed, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Think about that, it's a tumbleweed. <laughs> what kind of shade is he gonna offer? But now listen to the threat. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Hey, if you want me to be your king, come take protection. I can't offer that much, really. (laughs) But if you don't, you're going to pay for it. Robert Chisholm says, The fable draws attention to Abimelech's arrogance, um, his utter lack of qualifications, his inability to provide genuine protection, his thirst for power, and his destructive potential. This is the person they're putting in power. These kind of people have been putting themselves in power, getting themselves in power, and naive people have let them be in power for millennia. It was going on before this time, and it's going on in our day and age. 
Greg Wong says, Jotham is making the point that those who are foolish enough to choose an unworthy candidate as king should be wary of the destructive potential of their choice. They're going to get what they deserve. This is what Jotham is going to continue to say after the parable. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech your king? Have you been fair to Jerubal and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of the Midianites. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the city of Shechem because he's related to you. Look at what you're doing. So, you, so have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jerubal and his family today? If you have... May Abimelech be your joy, and may, he, may you be his too. Um, if you're doing the right thing, then God bless you. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you. The lords, the city fathers of Shechem and Bethmelo, and let, let fire come out from you, the lords of Shechem and Bethmelo, and consume Abimelech. If you've done the right thing, God bless you. But if you're being unfaithful all around, you guys deserve each other, and you're just going to consume each other. Not surprisingly, then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. Yeah, <laughs> we don't hear from him again. Now, God has a response to all of this, and it's to say, I'm in control. <laughs> in, in, in God's sovereign plan, he does use the ruthless exploits of evil men to accomplish his divine purposes. God is orchestrating all of this. Look at this. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. Do you see the subject of the sentence there? God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God's stirring the pot here. (laughs) They were getting along for three years until God said, okay, I'm going to stir the pot. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the lords of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, the lords of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. God stirs them up so that Abimelech has been set up as their king, but now they're disgruntled with it. And so what they're doing is, um, rather than letting all of the traders come into Shechem and bring their produce into Shechem that Abimelech would get his cut for, they go out and they ambush them, never letting them get into, get into Shechem so that, so that Abimelech could get his cut. This is reported to Abimelech. We've got problems. You've got resources we want. We're not going to let those resources get out. Folks, I'm talking in ancient history, but ancient tyrants and modern megalomaniacs there's a lot of overlap here (laughs) this is going to lead to abimelech's demise (laughs) abimelech now he's he's risen to power but god has stirred up the controversy and now we're going to see the world's system and values produces only chaos and destruction the world's now got what they want shechem's got abimelech abimelech's got shechem now they're starting to betray each other and God's going to use the world system to judge his people if they persist in unbelief. Because Israel's caught up in all of this. There's kind of four movements to Israel's demise on the way down. We're going to be introduced to a couple new characters. Um, Gael is going to be a new leader in Shechem who wants to rule in Shechem. Zebel 
is Abimelech's um, vice mayor in Shechem. He's, he's second in command. Um, and then we're going to see Abimelech pushing the limits, and then Abimelech, he gets his. Here we go. Now Gun, Gael, son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem. And its citizens put their confidence in him. Remember, they're already frustrated with Abimelech because God stirred that up. They put their confidence in Gael, not Abimelech anymore. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. So Gael's like, hey, I'm in charge now. Let's go get our stuff. We're not going to give any to Abimelech. And let's have a party, and we're going to curse him. Then Gael, son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech? And why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jerubbaal's son? And isn't Zebel his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Loaded statement there. I've got it in parenthesis, Genesis 34. Um, Hamor, Shechem's father, um, is the person who was ruling in Shechem back in Genesis 34. Um, I'm not going to do the calculation. A thousand years earlier. Um, when Jacob is living in the promised land, and Jacob and his 12 sons are kind of spreading out. And they go to Shechem, and the residents of Shechem rape uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah. That's the character of the Shechemites. And he's going, hey, let me rule, because we've got some strong history here. <laughs> Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army, we'll take you on. Um, so Abimelech has gotten control. God stirred up animosity. The people in Shechem don't like Abimelech anymore. And now Gael comes and he says, hey, I'll take him on. When Zebel, the governor, probably kind of the vice mayor, when Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gael, the son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Under cover, he sent messengers to Abimelech saying, Gael, son of Ebed, and his, uh, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gael and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. The people at Shechem obviously had vineyards outside the gate. That's, they had went outside the gate, harvested the vine, came back and had the big party. Um, their fields are outside the city. And so Zebel, Abimelech's henchman, Zebel says, hey, when they go out to harvest... Um, that's when you should make your attack. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed possession, positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding places. Um, Gaal, who's now kind of the protector, he's standing at the city gates as the people have gone out to, to start their harvesting. And, and he's standing at the gate watching. When Gael saw them, he said to, to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebel replied, Oh, you mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. Your eyes are playing tricks on you. That's not what it is. But Gael spoke up and he said, Look, people are coming from the central hill. They're coming right down the middle of the valley. And, and a company is coming from the direction of that diviner's tree. We're being attacked. There's people coming from all over. Then Zebel said to him, where's your big talk now? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men that you ridiculed? Go out and fight him. You, you picked the fight. Now it's yours. Folks, it's just who's fighting who and who's, 
who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? They're all bad guys. They're just all bad guys. And, and the solution is not a king that's on this earth. <laughs> the solution is not going to come until Jesus Christ sets it all right. So Gael led out the leaders of Shechem and fought Abimelech. But Abimelech wins. He chases him all the way to the entrance of the gate. And many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in a room. He doesn't go into Shechem. He stays in a room. And Zebul drove Gael and his clan out of Shechem. So Abimelech's going to win the war now. The next day, the people of Shechem went out into the fields. They're like, okay, it's over. These two, Gael and, and Abimelech, have, have settled it out. We're going to go back and harvest. The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields. And this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the field. This is just nothing but vengeance. He's conquered the leader. Now he just wants to wipe out the people. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he arose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward into the position at the entrance of the city. They close off the city so the people can't get back in. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed the attack against the city until he captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt all over it. He contaminated the ground so they couldn't have production and probably contaminates the water supply as well. On hearing this, the citizens who were still in Shechem, uh, on hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem, those who were still there, went into the stronghold of the temple of Elberit. They're in this tower and they get into the keep of the, of the tower. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalman. He took an axe, cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulder. He ordered the men with him, those reckless scoundrels, quick, do what you've seen me do. All you guys cut down some brush. Let's go. So all the men cut down and followed Abimelech. They piled them up against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Um, Abimelech defeats Gael and his army that he, he had assembled. He wipes out all the people. And the leaders who are gathered together, he burns them and burns them alive in a tower. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes. He doesn't stop with Shechem. He goes to another city. We don't know where the city is. We don't know why he's going there. I don't know if they had been allies of Shechem. I I don't know if maybe somebody had escaped there. But he goes to Thebes. He doesn't stop with Shechem. And he besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. (laughs) But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. I love it. J.L. Remember J.L. back in chapter 4 with Sisera? She took a tent peg and put it through his temple, so he died. Yes, that's right. God's using these unexpected women to take care of the enemy. She drops a millstone. Now, this is a little bit bigger than probably the actual millstone because this one's in the tower, so it probably would have been smaller. But this is how the millstone would have worked. There's a, a, a mill had a grinding spot on the bottom that had a track in it. You put your grain in there, and that upper stone is the one that rolls around. She's probably not carrying one this big unless something else is going on in terms of spirit power coming on her. Um, but it, it does, the, the one she's dropping is probably just five pounds, but she drops it on his head. Um, <laughs> the irony should not be missed. 
folks, put this together. God's in control of all of this. Abimelech murdered his brothers on one stone. Now he meets his demise when one woman hurls one stone on his head. It's called talionic justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You killed the 70 on one stone. Now one stone's going to take you out. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. (laughs) So this servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Wow. (laughs) This is chaos. This is violent. This is... um, (laughs) This is treacherous. This is betrayal. This is our world. And Yahweh's response is to say, but I've got it. In God's sovereign plan, he's going to use the ruthless exploits of Abimelech and Gael and Zebel to accomplish his divine purposes. Because God is sovereign, nobody else. God's got this under control. He had that one under control in the time of the judges, and he's got everything under control now. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Joseph, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. God said it right. Everybody got what was coming. Not in our time, not in their time. There was a lot of chaos and a lot of mess. But folks, the the sovereign plan of God can't be thwarted. By opposition from without, Midianites, Amalekites, Canaanites, whatever governmental rule, they can't thwart God's plan. He's going to accomplish his purpose. And and it also can't be thwarted from rebellion from within. When, When somebody, an insider, Abimelech is an insider, None of that is is a threat to the plan of God. So I've got a couple of next steps for us here, something that's true in the midst of all these passages. God's not surprised by world events. He wasn't surprised then, and he's never been surprised since, and he's not surprised by what's going on today. God sovereignly orchestrates the exploits of foolish leaders to accomplish his divine purposes. And in the middle, there may be violence, there may be bloodshed, But God is orchestrating all of that to advance and accomplish his purposes. So here's a warning from this passage. Persistence in idolatry and and selfish pursuits of power, Gideon, Abimelech, it leads only to chaos and destruction. In worldwide events, that's true. And in our lives, that's true. When when we are idolatrous and we're not making God the priority and following him the priority, you could fool yourselves into thinking these are wise decisions, but it's only going to lead to chaos and destruction. And your self-centered pursuits, rather than submission to the will of God, is only going to lead to chaos and destruction. So here's the challenge. Let's trust God with the future of the world and with our next step. Let's, let's recognize God's in control. He's, he's got it all under control. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose, and it's working out like he wants it. And he uses the ruthless exploits of evil men to accomplish that. We can trust him with the big picture, and we can trust him with your very next step. And that's what God calls us to do. God uses 
all of this, violence, evil men making evil decisions to accomplish his purposes, 